Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The reading from the Old Testament is Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. The Lord God proclaims, I myself will search for my flock and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out the flock, when some in the flock have been scattered, so will I seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered during the time of clouds and thick darkness. I will gather and lead them out from the countries and peoples, and I will bring them to their own fertile land. I will feed them on Israel's highlands, along the riverbeds, and in all the inhabited places. I will feed them in good pasture, and their sheepfold will be there on Israel's lofty highlands. On Israel's highlands, they will lie down in a secure fold and feed on green pastures. I myself will feed my flock and make them lie down. This is what the Lord God says. I will seek out the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the wounded, and strengthen the weak. But the fat and the strong I will destroy, because I will tend to my sheep with justice. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading for today comes from the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. After 13 and a half years with you, I'm still discovering things that you and I have in common. So on this holiday weekend, humor me, I'll make a random statement, and if it applies to you, answer aloud, me too. I'm a little frustrated with Michigan football. But I still love Jim Harbaugh. I prefer pumpkin pie to sweet potato pie. I think raising teenagers is rather challenging. Sometimes I'm depressed about the state of our world. I have been the victim of sexual harassment. Me too. too. Two little words that have taken on new meaning in the last six weeks after awful revelations about Miramax founder Harvey Weinstein exploded into a torrent of accusations against other powerful men, including Charlie Rose, Al Franken, and Kevin Spacey. A movement started to highlight the magnitude of sexual harassment in our culture, and it has succeeded in doing so. Women have spoken up to admit that they, too, have been harassed or worse by posting two simple words, me too, on their Facebook or Twitter accounts. In the first 48 hours alone, there were 12 million me too tweets and Facebook posts. Women and some men used digital media to tell stories they had never told before, finding courage to speak out and then to talk further with loved ones who never knew. Some worry their careers and reputation will suffer for their honesty, and some know they will not be believed, and some know they will be blamed. We now know through the reports about Michigan Representative John Conyers that some women did tell, but it didn't matter. Workplaces can collude to protect people in power. Over a 20-year period, Congress's Office of Compliance basically the Human Resource Department for Congressional Employees, paid out $17 million for 264 settlements for various violations, including sexual harassment. Once a complaint is made, and before it can go forward in any way, a confidentiality agreement must be signed. That one office concealed episodes of sexual abuse by powerful political figures for decades. Imagine what more will come out about bad behavior, but also the systemic structures largely put in place by men, particularly processes that protect people in power. The Me Too movement, though, is about more than revealing the pervasive nature of sexual harassment and the intrinsic framework in our culture through which it has thrived. This is an effort to find healing through the sharing of stories, Rob Bell once said that the most powerful sermons are the Me Too ones because they can help us connect with others who mirror our pain so that the place of our greatest wounds can be the very place from which we find comfort. The Me Too movement highlights, it heals, but with a hope that it might just change our culture. No matter whether you are a wounded victim in this room an ashamed perpetrator, a shocked observer, or a friend to any of those, we can agree that healing and change are desperately needed. A culture that hides sexual harassment must become a culture that protects all people from it, particularly the next generation. 
Our children and youth here today are vulnerable to joining the Me Too Club as victims of sexual harassment and assault if we don't talk about it. But do we have to talk about it in church? Yes. This is a kind of sin, and our failure to deal with it is also a sin. Faith and church are already a part of the discussion. Some Alabama pastors and the American Family Association are defending current senator candidate Roy Moore, who sure appears to be a pedophile, because, quote, he's been a faithful member of the church for a long time and we know him, which makes their morality look a lot like political expediency. Our sacred texts are used to distract us and blame the victim, like when Sean Hannity turned to the Ten Commandments to suggest that the nine women who have accused Roy Moore are sinning because thou shalt not lie. One political strategist used our Christmas story to defend Moore's preying on 14-year-old girls, saying that Joseph was an adult carpenter and Mary was a teenager, and they became the parents of Jesus. Nothing immoral or illegal, just a bit unusual. This is not about partisanship. This is politics playing our most cherished values, teachings, and stories against us. Are we not called to respond? To defend the integrity of our faith and beliefs and practices from such distortions? Of course. But we must also question our own integrity. For faith and religion can provide the context for harm. In fact, a new hashtag is exploding on Twitter, Church2, an online outpouring of stories of sexism and harassment received through church experiences, like a woman who revealed her assault during a prayer group meeting only to be asked if she'd repented, another who fled an abusive marriage, was told by her pastor to return home and submit to her husband's will. Churches, we know, can be places of harm. In 25 years of ministry, the vast majority of men and women I have encountered and had intimate pastoral conversations with have been meaningful, appropriate, and life-giving. I have absolutely loved this work. And yet sexually inappropriate statements and innuendo are real in ministry. And I admit that many times I have worked hard to excuse it. But there is no excuse. Certainly some of these situations were likely innocent and perhaps unintentional. Some mild comments made about how I look or dress or the slightly too tight hugs. Then there were the deliberate and humiliating ones. The youth parent who wrote me a thank you note that ended with a cryptic invitation to lie next to him. The church visitor who came to my office and propositioned me and then after I confronted him accused me of being the propositioner the male regular attender with a sexual addiction who came to me instead of three other male pastors on staff to share the details of his story and ask for prayer. My co-chaperone on one of my mission trips, who while I was asleep, got inside my sleeping bag. Most of my colleagues of both genders have their own stories to share, and these are but a few. It is as painful for me to take on this topic today as it is for you to sit here and hear it. While the vast majority in relationships in the church are healthy, and we are grateful for those who relate to us as pastors appropriately in intimate pastoral conversations, one editorial offered these words. It's absurd to feel grateful to men just for exercising basic decency. We should take it for granted. Should we take it for granted in church? 
We think of the terrible tragedies that have occurred by Catholic priests upon young boys. We recount particular Presbyterian churches in our denomination that have suffered from awful incidents. And you've heard just a piece of my story today. We know it can happen in any faith community because sin is pervasive and it will happen everywhere. So if we hold ourselves to a higher standard, we do not take safety for granted. We know that hurt and harm can happen and we hold one another accountable. We refuse to cover it up, we confront it, we address it, we heal and change, forgive and protect. We have a policy here that protects children thanks to Debbie McVeigh. But adults must also have a policy, this one. First, we must understand the problem. The stories we are hearing are not simply about sexual desire on the part of the abusers and harassers. People harass and humiliate as a way to exercise or express power, not desire. Power urged by a lack of self-control and selfishness. We live in a world that in too many situations has traded healthy vulnerability and love between people for sexualized, fear-based power struggles. Second, based on our understanding of this problem, we seek a life more like Jesus. We seek and speak truth to that power in love. Third, we are called to wrestle with anything systemic in our way of being with God and one another that condones or enables this behavior, including scriptures and images of God that have been used to justify the use of power in this particular way. Thankfully, we are met in this particular, particular cultural moment with a gospel passage that speaks of power and judgment. Today is Christ the King Sunday in our liturgical year, where we celebrate Christ who reigns over the universe, who is Lord over men and women, the Most High, the powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. In obedience, we bow down before him who has triumphed over everything. An uncomfortable image, perhaps, since the idea of kings and queens is outdated and usually oppressive. We prefer Brother Jesus off the throne, walking alongside us, ever-present to guide and protect. He is our light in the darkness and our salvation in distress, the strength of our life when we are weak, our refuge and our relief, and he dwells right here with us, this Jesus the choir will soon sing about in Psalm 27. But Christ the King Sunday is also a time to redeem the idea of kingship and reshape our understanding of power, no matter what gender is exercising it. Historically, kings ruled with force and harshness to protect their power over the people. But now, in Ezekiel, which was so well read for us, God gives the Hebrews a new understanding. Kings are not to rule by fear and power, but instead to rule by justice, righteousness, and compassion. God in this passage is weary and grieved, but resolute, determined to rescue his people and appoint a new kind of king, one who does the work of a shepherd. For the shepherd thinks of his own needs last and the needs of his herd first, protects the sheep from harm, and provides them space for growth and happiness and safety. The Gospels further God's unconventional twist on power and leadership, giving us a king in Jesus who is a shepherd and savior. Jesus radically redefined and transformed the concept of kingship. Standing apart from the oppressive nature of secular kings, he didn't 
establish an earthly kingdom supporting a particular nation or class or or race. He came to free all people from sin and death and to welcome them into a kingdom defined by equality and kindness and respect and humility and service. I am the good shepherd, he said. I did not come to be served, but to serve. King servant, king shepherd. Jesus is not a king who dominates, but friends, he is one who discriminates. Matthew's prophecy about the sheep and the goats tell us that this king has standards. We are free not for ourselves, but for others. Here he separates people, but not based on their beliefs, but on their behavior. To pass muster before this king, one neither has to believe in God, nor believe anything in particular about God. It is what you do in those ordinary situations we confront on a regular basis. Hunger and thirst, homelessness and nakedness, sickness and imprisonment. We are not asked to solve these problems, but to respond to the human need right in front of us. Feed people, give them water, give them shelter, give them clothing, provide decent health care, visit and console them in prison. But there is something more. The sheep on the right were surprised to learn that they had done something for the king. They weren't seeking a reward. They thought they were simply being human and humane. The goats on the left were surprised to learn that they had failed to do something for the king. Why, had I seen the king in such conditions, of course I would have taken care of it. But I didn't see the king. I just saw those people. Doing the right thing is not about gaining reward or not, and not about avoiding punishment. Jesus' point here is that our best selves are focused on what we can do for others and not asking what's in it for me. So you and I and the church together cannot be the surprise sheep or the naive goats who do not see hardship around us. We see and tend to all God's people, the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, the naked ones, the sick and the suffering, those in prison, and those being sexually harassed or dominated or humiliated or diminished. For all of them are Christ, and our call is to respond to their need with love, compassion, and support. There can never be a what's-in-it-for-me mentality, but what's-in-it-for-you, for what is in you, I now see, is the face of Christ. Let us not be surprised. I have spoken to you today about just one major issue, sexual harassment and abuse, particularly against women. Christ the King draws near to us in this moment, calling men and women to use our privilege to reach out, lift up, protect. And the church acting in Jesus' name, the King must also do the same, holding accountable friends and family, pastors and party. Those here may not be the ones who most need to hear this message, but we do hear it. We will speak up. We will speak the truth in love. We will say no if we see something inappropriate. We will speak with our youth and teens to empower them to use their voices to name what they experience and to do what they can to protect themselves. We will be a congregation of love, authenticity, that listens and heals and change 
and we will look hard within ourselves as men and women and as a congregation for our tendencies to dominate or control, collude or hide, and to look away from what is uncomfortable. There is no surprise, and there is no excuse. I believe we can do better. How about you? Me too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us put our trust in the Lord and come to God in prayer. Through Jesus Christ, God has shown us the sovereignty of divine love and compassion for the least, the lost, and the lonely. God, we live in a world of plenty in which the poor struggle for their daily bread. We pray for those who lack basic necessities of life and those who willingly share the resources they have been given. Correct those who hoard resources out of anxiety, ignorance, or selfishness. Open their eyes to your presence among the poor of the world and free them for joyful giving. For the poor, the benevolent, and the heart of heart, compassionate Lord, hear our prayer. God, you admonish us to offer hospitality to the stranger, to welcome the weary. We pray for travelers, for those who immigrate to new lands, for refugees of political and religious wars, and especially for those who have no place to call home. Bless those who offer refuge to the wayfaring stranger. Convict the conscience and open the heart of any who would raise walls of self-preservation and isolation. Convict our hearts to be open and welcoming. God, you hear the cry of all who are in distress. Heal those who are sick in body, mind, or spirit. Comfort them in their need and help those who care for them. We also pray for those who abandon the sick and suffering out of fear. But teach us to serve our sisters and brothers to share in the burden of disease, both of body, mind, and heart. Save the lost, reprove the haughty, liberate the captive, and let your disciples be a sign of your forgiving, reconciling, and liberating love. We pray for all of those who have been victims, victims of terror attacks in places of worship, Victims of harassment in places where they should be, where trust should be able to reign. We also pray that your kingdom truly come in the world, that war will be no more, that we will learn from our king, our shepherd. We will learn from Jesus, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. 
For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.